Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As we continue in our Christmas series or the Advent season, we're looking at the account of Jesus' birth in the book of Luke. Last week we looked at the announcement of John the Baptist's, uh, John, the forerunner of Jesus, how it was announced to his father as a miraculous birth. And pick it up today, we're going to be in verse 26, which is continuing on. It's a parallel passage. So in, in chapter 1, Zacharias was a priest in the temple. He was uh, doing his service, and an angel appeared to him and said, your wife who is old and doesn't have any children is going to have a baby, and he's going to be great. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he's going to preach repentance, and he's going to be a, a cause of rejoicing. John says, I don't believe you. So the angel said, that's because you don't really know who I am, so you won't be able to speak until the baby's born. Then we come to this passage, and so Elizabeth got pregnant. And then verse 26, this is another birth announcement that parallels that one. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What does a birth announcement 2,000 years ago to a poor teenage girl have anything to do with us today? I know we're supposed to say, well, it's about Jesus. Right. But this birth announcement, yeah, I mean, get in chapter 2 where it says, and Jesus was born in a manger. Okay, we, we kind of get that. But what about this previously? Why should we care about this? Sometimes we don't think we should ask that question. We just say, well, it's in the Bible, so we're supposed to know it. it's supposed to be good. Right, but why? And answering that question brings the Bible from 2,000 years ago into our life today, it's one thing to say we believe the Bible and that it's true. It's another thing to say that it's actually relevant. And I think there's a disconnect there a lot of times. Yeah, it's true, but I don't really care what it says because I don't need it. It's also true, uh, the population that statistics give us of China, but I don't really care. So we look at this. What's the relevance of this announcement? And a lot of that hinges on what's the purpose? Who is this child? And why is Mary's response important? Why is Mary in this story? 
So we're going to look at what the angel said to her and how she responded and how things haven't really changed despite the cultural and time difference. So the angel comes to Mary and says, I've got a message for you. So it's interesting, uh, verse 28, and having come in, the angel said to her, you may not recognize this translation, but you will recognize the other one. It says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. So you've heard of Hail Marys? This is where it comes from. It's actually a quote. Uh, so it could be translated, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now, I don't recommend you repeating that over and over again, because the point of this story is not that Mary is somehow divinely connected to God in a way that other humans are. It's that she's a nobody. She's a teenage girl. She's probably about 15. Um, they got married really young back then. She's probably about 15. She was in abject poverty in a way that's really hard for us to understand in a really, really small town. That it's so small, in fact, it says uh, that she lived in, it, God was, the angel sent to God, by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. They had to mention Galilee because no one would have known where Nazareth was. It was had like 100 people in it. Teenage girl who was going to have a pregnancy before she was married in abject poverty in a patriarchal society. That's the point. But an angel comes to her and says to her, uh, I've got a message for you that's never been given to someone like you before. So in the beginning it says, Rejoice, highly favored, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. And when she, said, when she saw this, uh, saw the angel, she was troubled at his saying. Why was she troubled? Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, which Mary was very familiar with, that message only came to great men who would lead the nation and be prophets. Not her. It never came to teenage girls. So now there's an angel showing up to her saying things that were said to prophets and kings. That's a, that's a little intimidating, isn't it? So she was troubled and she waited. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. God has chosen you graciously to do something that's never been done before. And what is that? God with us. God is going to join the human race. God in heaven is going to become part of the human race. That's a revolutionary statement. In any religion, in any culture, the creator becoming a part of creation. So that's what the angel says to her. He says, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. In other words, it will be a human baby. That's where babies come from, the womb of the mother. And his name will be Jesus. But unlike other humans, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his, of his father, David. And then verse down in verse 35, it says, the Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. Is he God or is he a man? That question's been bothering people for a long time. It really doesn't make any sense. If you don't understand that this is a paradox, you can't understand the miracle here. You can't understand the impact unless you realize who God is and who man is. God is creator. God is the highest. Man is created, limited. So if the highest, the powers that be, the creator, the eternal, how can the eternal become limited as a man? 
and still be called the highest, still be called God? I don't know. I have no idea. That's called a mystery. You don't have to explain everything. You just have to believe it. So here's what it says. There are going to be two natures in one person. Now, we're all humans, right? So we all have human nature. A lot of us have pets. What kind of nature does your dog have? (laughs) Dog nature. You go look at nature. What are you looking at? Things that are not humans. What this is saying is that there's going to be a person who has two separate natures, two separate characters in one person. That's never existed before or since. That can't happen, can it? Two natures, one person. In verse 35 it says, And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that holy one. Holy means separate. Separate from what? In this case, separate from every other human that's ever been born. So he's, so, so the angel's saying to Mary, you're about to have a baby that's going to be different from every other baby in existence. So if you're, if you've been pregnant, it's kind of scary being pregnant. What if someone told you that your pregnancy is going to be different than every other pregnancy in the whole world? That's what he's saying. So it's going to be different. How is it going to be different? How is this baby going to be different from all the other babies? The Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, was it Mary's son? Yeah, he says, you will have a son. Is it Mary's son or is it the son of God? Is it divine or is it human? So sometimes we get in trouble with the son of God. You're like, okay, well, if it's the son of God, then it's not God. Has anyone ever struggled with that question? If you haven't, please talk to me because I'd like to hear how you explain that. The son of God and God seem to be two separate things. So if Jesus is the son of God, then he must not be God. But that's not how we understand this language. What this is saying is, when you have a child, whose nature does that child have? Where do they get their nature from? The parents. When your dog has puppies, what kind of puppies are they? The same as the parent. When a plant has a seed and it germinates, and whatever, however that works, what is produced? The same kind of plant. So when Mary has a son, what kind of son will it be? It will be a human son because she's a human. But what the angel is saying is it will also be the son of God. And the son of God has what nature? Has whose nature? The nature of its father. The son of God has the nature of God the father. Now, in a Jewish context, if there's one thing that's clear in the Old Testament, it's this. The Lord your God is one God and there is no other. So when Mary hears this, she has to reconcile something. There is only one God. This baby will have that nature of that one God. There's only one conclusion. That baby will be God. If you have the nature of God, you are a divine being. And if there's only one divine being, then you are God. So what's happening here is somehow, in a way that no one can explain, there's a person who has the nature of his mother, Mary, and the nature of his father, God, making him both completely 100% human and 100% God. The two natures existing in one person, not mixed, not intermingled, separate natures, one person. Now that seems a little out there, doesn't it? But since it's the only time it's ever happened in this world, that makes it significant, doesn't it? 
God has decided to become a human and still stay God. This is different than John. You see, John, he was just the forerunner. He was going to be the greatest prophet. He would be great, but not like Jesus. John was just like his parents, and that's it. Just a human, a great human, but that's it. Jesus, on the other hand, is God on earth. Leo said this about 1,200 years ago. The distinctiveness of both natures and substances was preserved, God and man, and both met in one person. Lowliness was assumed by majesty, weakness by power, mortality by eternity. And in order to pay the debt of our condition, the inviolable nature was united to the passable. That which could not be changed was united to that which does change in one person. What this means practically is that God is one of us. God is not out there, up in heaven, the man up in the sky. That's not the God we serve. That's the God of other religions. Here's the God we serve, God with us. Dorothy Sayer puts it very bluntly this way. For what it means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. But he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. We live our lives as if God is waiting in heaven for us. What this is saying, no, he came down to us, God with us, God who suffered hunger, God who struggled with poverty, God who had siblings that he couldn't get along with. Do you see how real that makes God? That problem you're suffering with through, Jesus knows. Jesus was there. Jesus felt it. It's a God that we can identify and relate to, even though we're weak and limited. John Nolan said this, comparing John, the great prophet, the greatest of men that we know of, with Jesus. John, in his prophecy, will be great before the Lord, but Jesus' greatness knows no qualification. John is consecrated to Nazarite abstinence. Jesus' holiness extends to the very basis of his existence. John will be a preparer, but Jesus will be son and king forever. And yet he was born of a woman. The highest, notice he says the son of the highest, the highest becomes the lowest. You know, there's nothing lower than a baby. There's nothing more weak and vulnerable than a baby. If you want to become as weak and as vulnerable as possible, become a newborn infant. That's it. So God says, I'm the highest. What's the lowest I can get? I'll become a baby. Do you realize the gap between those two? The God we worship does not sit on a throne and just watch things happen. He came down and was born of a woman. He became a baby. But look what he does once he's born. It's not just that God came and lived with us and that was it. 
It says, you will bring forth a son, you call his name Jesus, in verse 35. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is a man, Jesus is God, but Jesus is a king that will rule forever. Now, we don't think in those terms. We don't have kings. We have presidents. And what's the defining quality of American presidents? One, they never stick around long. And two, they're terrible. <laughs> right? This is saying the exact opposite. Everything you don't like about our presidents, Jesus is the opposite of that. He doesn't go away. You, that president that you liked only got eight years, right? This is a king that lives forever. How does he rule, though? You see, the, the entire Bible, from the beginning to the end, is talking about a king who's going to come to his people and restore them. Now, think of that in the context. Mary, dirt poor, oppressed, objectified, weak, living in a patriarchal society in a country that's oppressed by another country. She's at the very, 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 very bottom. A woman in a patriarchal society, a poor person in a, in a world that values riches, in a country that's disgraced and in slavery to another country. So when the king is promised to that person, that means something. Restoring Mary from that position to the position that she longs for. Now, do you feel a little pushed down by life? It's because life is terrible. And if it doesn't feel terrible right now, it's because you've distracted yourself with something else. But it'll feel terrible pretty soon. Christmas is great, right? You know when one of the worst times of the year is? January. Christmas sometimes for a lot of people because of the depression, but January is terrible because there's nothing to distract you with. Christmas tree's gone. All you've got left is the stuff you got for Christmas that you're tired of and the bills. So we distract ourselves with Christmas for a little while, and then January's terrible. What this is saying is that there's a king coming who will rescue his people, raise them up into a society. You see, this is more than just your individual person. This is a way of living, the stores you go to, the roads you drive on, the people you relate to, the jobs you have, where everything works in harmony. A king, you see, it's important that he's a king, because what do kings do? They get what they want. They tell people what to do and they get it. We don't want an elected president. They have to compromise. They have to work with people. Kings don't work with people. So when a king shows up, he gets his way. So Jesus' king is going to make the world right, whether it wants it or not. It's gonna make, he's going to make the world live in harmony. He's going to make people live together in harmony. Isn't that great? A, a peaceful society? where people get along, where there's no oppression, where there's no poverty. Can you imagine living in a country where no one's poor? That's the promise. That's what the king is going to do. And how long will it last? There's no golden age. There's no going back to when it was good. He will be like this forever. He will enforce a kingdom where there's never poverty, where there's never oppression, where no one is ever marginalized. And this all comes to Mary. Mary's probably thinking, I just want something to eat tomorrow. And you're telling me about the rest of the world and the future of eternity. It's a big thing. 
Matthew chapter 1 says that his name will be called Jesus. Tell Joseph, Mary's husband or future husband, that for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is human and God. He's a king, but he's also a savior. You see, talking about a kingdom where everything's peaceful brings up problems, doesn't it? Brings up your neighbor. Brings up your boss. Brings up the government. What about those things? What about all the stuff that gets in the way of this? You can't just say it's going to be good until you deal with the problems. That's what a Savior does. He takes you out of the situation. He rescues you from the problem. So when he says, Jesus, he's saying, Mary, your life is terrible. But you're going to have a son who's going to fix that, who's going to take you out of that life. This is the promise of the Old Testament to Israel, that someone's going to come and fix everything, including you. The problem with the world is that the world's terrible and we're terrible. The world is unforgiving and we're unforgiving. The world is selfish and we're selfish. So who's Jesus going to save? Everyone that needs it, including Mary. So this is a message for Mary, and it's a message to us. One of the problems with the modern world is that we think we can fix things within. Progress moving forward, growing. If we just work together, we can make things right. This message to Mary is saying that is never going to happen. This is, the, in one way, the most pessimistic message you could get. It's saying every single human that exists can't fix the problem, no matter how great they are. No amount of human cooperation can fix the problem. There's not anything in the human race that can solve its own problems. So much so that God says, I'm going to have to come down there myself and do it. I'm going to have to become a human so that for the first time, there will be someone who can fix the problem. Now, since we're not Jesus, that means all of our work will never work. All of our effort can't work. If this message is true, then nothing the human race can do will fix its problems. So whatever government solution you wish would come into place... I guarantee you it will not fix the problem. If that could fix the problem, then this passage is not necessary. If you need a savior, it's because you're dying. If you need someone to rescue you, it's because you're lost. The human race is lost. And we like to think that we're different than the people back at this time because we have iPhones and democracy. No, we're not. Humans haven't improved since then. What would make them improve? Where's the source of the improvement come from? The core of humanity is corrupt so that someone from the outside had to come in to fix it. You had to call in outside help. If you had to call in outside help at your work, it's not always a good thing, is it? It's the acknowledgement that you couldn't fix the problem. Your boss said, look, if you can't fix the problem, I'm going to call somebody in here to fix it. That's exactly what happened here. God says, I'm calling in someone to fix the problem. I've given you time. You failed. You can't do it. So Jesus came in. So Jesus is the God-man, God in flesh. He's the king, the eternal king, and he's the savior of the world, or he's the savior of his people. What's the response to that? Okay, we know all this stuff. Now Now what? So we have Mary's response. See, the Bible doesn't just give this as a history of just what happened. It's saying, here's how you should respond. Now, remember Zacharias in chapter 1? He got a message, too. 
He didn't respond well. Mary, on the other hand, is given to us an example of someone who did respond well. And the irony of a priest responding poorly while a poor teenager responds appropriately, there's a lesson there about Christianity, about how we should view Christianity and the, the, the people that God values, uh, the response that God values. So the angel comes to her. The first thing she does, the angel shows up and gives her a compliment. And what does Mary do? What are you supposed to do when an angel shows up? Just wonder, excitement. What does Mary do? She was troubled and pondered it. You know what pondered means? It means to weigh your options, to compare reasons, to think logically through something. An angel shows up to a 15-year-old girl, and the girl's like, let me think about this for a minute. Wait, Wait a minute, what's happening here? Let me take a minute and figure out what's going on. That's a lesson right there. Mary was chosen because she was able to have a little bit of doubt and a few questions. And when an angel shows up, she doesn't suspend her brain. Isn't that what we tell teenagers? Stop thinking and do what I say. It's not what the Bible says. It says the one person in the whole world that she lived in who no one would take seriously is here weighing her options, trying to balance the books trying to figure out what's going on. And it says, Mary, this is going to happen. What does Mary do? She believes it. The end of the passage is Mary saying, I accept your message. Compare that to Zacharias, who had to be struck mute to prove that he was wrong for not believing. The immediate response that we have to God's word should be Mary's. I believe that If this is God's word, I believe it. Now, the secular world tells you to doubt everything, doesn't it? Don't believe anything. Just be skeptical about everything. You hear anything, there's nothing that you really know can be true. Those religious people, they're the worst because they, we doubt everything. There is no supernatural. Talk to the people outside of the church about the supernatural and what, what response do you get? superstitious, backwoods, right? Too ignorant to know better. But on the other hand, what does the church say? Don't ask any questions. Don't have any doubts. You see, it may be hard for secular people to believe this, and you may be here thinking, it's really hard to believe that a virgin had a baby and that baby was God. But you know what Mary was trained to think? That it was impossible for God to be man. Mary was trained as a Jew to say that God, his name can't even be spoken. When you read the the Hebrew text to this day, when you read the Hebrew Bible, when it says the name Yahweh, the Jews will not say Yahweh. They will say Adonai, which means Lord. That's why in our Bibles it says Lord doesn't say Yahweh. They won't even utter his name. And here's an angel telling Mary that he's not only going to utter his name, he's going to be born of you. You have no hurdles to get over like Mary had to get over. Her entire culture, her entire religion, her entire life, she was trained to think that God is above man. And now an angel's telling her he's not going to be just above man, he's going to be a man, and you're going to give birth to him. Why does Mary believe this? Is that a good question? Why does she believe this? She's not supposed to. She's been told not to. Healthy doubt 
is appropriate. So when the angel says to her, you're going to have a baby, what does she say? I'm not married yet. I don't, I've had no relations with a man. Now, it sounds like that's not the question she should ask, right? She should just accept it. Here's the problem. When you hear something for the first time that's never been heard of by anybody ever, what's your first response? Can you explain that? There's nothing wrong with a Christian having some questions and having some doubts. See, Zacharias is the problem where you just won't believe. Mary is, a, is an example of us saying, this is new. I'd like to hear more about it. No one had ever been born of a virgin. God had never become man. So Mary wants to know more about that. And what does the angel say? Here's how it's going to happen. And then healthy doubt, which is looking for an answer, when it gets the answer, what does it do? It accepts it. What should we be doing? We should be looking for the answer. And when we find it, we believe it. It's the doubt that won't ever find the answer that's the problem. And conservative churches react too far and say, don't ask any questions. Don't doubt at all. Just accept everything without thinking. Mary would say, I'm only 15, but that's wrong. That's not the way it should be. But in the end, God has spoken. That's the end of the matter. And for Mary, that was enough. God has spoken. And whatever doesn't make sense about a virgin having a baby, Mary's like, I can get over that. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem possible. It's never happened. God becoming man, I can't even comprehend that, but if you say so. This is the problem when people don't understand things. Uh, Leo said this 1,200 years ago, but into this folly they do fall, who, when hindered by some obscurity from apprehending the truth, something gets in the way of understanding the truth, they have not turned into... Not to the words of the prophets, nor the letters of the apostles, nor to the authority of the gospels, but to themselves. He said, I don't understand what the preachers say. And instead of turning to the word of God, they turn to themselves. Where does that get you? That gets you as God. I don't, I don't know about that. I have to think about that. No, you don't have to think about it. You need to go to the Bible and think about it. See, the word of God is the standard. So when Mary realizes that the angel is bringing God's word to her, she accepts it. Hebrews 2 says this, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first being, began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? You see, Mary accepted the word of the angel. We're in a much better position. We don't just have the word of an angel. We have the word of Jesus himself and the witnesses. So if Mary hadn't believed the angel, that would have been a problem. But she did. What about us? We don't just have the word of the angel. We have the word of the angel, of Mary, of Joseph, of the apostles, of the witnesses. The Bible says, how shall you escape if you neglect that? Use your brain and think about it. Don't just say, well, I believe whatever. No, think about it. Weigh it. If you reject the word of God, you're rejecting God. And there's no escape from that. So if, it's, if the message is true, what's the response to the message? If Jesus is king, 
What does that mean for us? What do you do with a king? You bow. You believe that he's the king, and then you bow. And maybe that's a disconnect for a lot of us. We believe that Jesus came into the world, but there's nothing else. So it's believe that he's king, and then bow before the king. If Jesus is God, then how much do you hold back? Well, let's look at Mary's response. She realizes that this baby's going to be God, that God has spoken. And then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Mary said, I have a status that is subject to the king. Not just, well, I'm going to follow him. No, my status has changed. I'm now a person who is wholly under the power of the king. Believing that he's the king is not enough. You must subject your entire person under his authority. That's why bowing is such a big deal. Have you ever seen someone bow? They take their whole body and they put it on the ground in front of somebody. That's symbolic. That's what Mary says. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. What kind of response is that? She's saying, whatever. My status is that of someone who serves. Some translations say a slave of the Lord. But if he's the king, if he's the eternal king, what options do you have? If he's going to be the rightful king forever, you either bow to him or you're destroyed by him. Mary takes the right choice and bows before him. If he's God, then he has everything. And if he's the king, then you need to submit your will to him. And that's what Mary says. Let it be to me according to your word. I accept the plan. I want what you want. I want what God wants. Whatever I thought was going to happen with my life, Mary had plans before this. She was going to get married. Joseph seems like a really decent guy. She's going to raise a family and do whatever. All that changes right away. And she says, fine with me. New plans, I'm okay with that. Because the king has spoken to me personally. But what if you really liked your plans? What if your plans were better? You see, what's going to happen to Mary? Isn't it great that she's going to have baby Jesus? No. She's going to be in a patriarchal society with an illegitimate child. And she's like, yeah, great, I'll do it. You realize what's going to happen to her life, her entire life? Jesus even mentions it later in John where he references that there was an upstanding rumor that Joseph was not Jesus' dad. And in that society, that destroyed your life. Your reputation was terrible. In a patriarchal society, what did women offer? Children, a lineage. God is saying, you're not going to have that. You're going to be marked for my sake. And Mary's like, okay, I'll take that burden because it's worth it, because the king has spoken to me. You see what God's doing in this passage? He's saying, all that stuff that you cared about, put it aside. All your reputation, all your relationships, all your plans, all your hopes for the future, get rid of them. Just get rid of them and accept a life of suffering and of submission to God. Keller says, where's the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart. Since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives, we may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous, rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may flee from religion, become atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, 
We are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. Whether you are religious or an atheist, the same problem exists. You're trying to figure out a way to get what you want in spite of God. Look at Mary. Listen to this teenage girl. I'm your slave. Whatever you want, I want. But there's more to it. Jesus is supposed to be a savior. Let's put this in context. Who did he come to? He came to a daughter of David. He came to a Jewish girl. The passage says that Jesus will be the savior of his people. We're not his people. We're not Jewish. It says he will sit on the throne of who? David. Jesus came to save his people. Where does that leave us? Leaves us on the outside. Don't just take everything out of context. Mary is getting a promise fulfilled, those promises in the Old Testament. The Gentiles weren't part of the promise. You see, we can't just say just because we believe, now we get it. We've got to do it God's way. And God says Jesus came to save his people. Jesus came to be a king over his people, to rule over the, king, the house of Jacob forever. So the, really the question is, you should have already accepted that this was true. By this time, you, have, you better have said that this is the true account because God said it. Don't put yourself at odds with God. Now the question is, if he came to save his people, how do I become one of his people? If he came to rule over his people, how do I become a citizen of that kingdom? Because you weren't born into it. How does it happen? The same way Mary got in. I believe, I submit. The incarnation solves the problem of all these people who are separated. The incarnation. God couldn't save us unless Jesus became a human. Why? Ephesians 2 tells us. It says, remember that you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, who Jesus came to save, and strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no promises, having no hope, and without God in the world. You are not part of Mary's family. You are without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know what blood of Christ means? He had to have a body to have blood. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see the emphasis on the body of Christ? What Mary's getting here is the gospel. She's saying, he's, the angel's saying to Mary, the gospel's coming. It's Jesus in the flesh. God can't save us unless he becomes a human. And once he becomes a human, he can save his people and us. Because he takes all the different races and all the different religions and all the different ethnicities, and he kind of pushes those out of the way, and he brings them into his new body. No incarnation, no salvation. No baby Jesus, no salvation. There had to be a body to be killed. But that's the beauty of the message. There was a body. There was a baby. There was a man named Jesus who came. And the, the passage finished up, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers 
and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who did Jesus come to save? His people. Who are his people? All those who believe and bow. And you are made a citizen of the kingdom. Now Christ is your eternal king. We are adopted into the family. You may not feel like you're as bad off as Mary, but you are. You're an alien. You're separated. You have no hope unless you can be brought into this king's family. How does that happen? A baby's born, a baby dies, and we all get the benefits. Right now, you need to say, this is the word of God. I believe it. And since this is the word of God, then a king has been born, and I submit everything to him. Can't follow him, but I submit to him. And then God, by his grace, will say, that's enough. You're in the family. Now the king is your king. Now the savior is your savior. Now he can fix all your problems. All we have to do is give up everything. And then we get peace on earth. Let's pray.